Hello, Learning Curve listeners. It is November 30th today. You'll be hearing this on December 1st. Um, but we are here with another great edition of the Learning Curve. I'm super excited for our upcoming guests. But before we tell you who that is, to the, the biggest question, the question that has been on my mind for a week, Gerard, how was the gumbo? The gumbo was good. It is Monday. No one is sick. So obviously that proves that it was really You've good. You succeeded. I succeeded. The girls were shocked that their father could actually make gumbo from scratch, ruin all. So I'm quite proud of myself. I bet. Yeah, you know, you sent me a picture and I got to say it looked pretty tasty. It looked better than what I was serving them. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, there are some things I can cook. My kids like to complain that I cook too many vegetables and not enough of what they like to eat and uh, roasting a turkey. It's just time intensive. That's all. Um, I have some new news in the Kendall household. We got a puppy for Thanksgiving. Drum roll. Yeah. A pretty big deal. Little Luna came, came to join us. I have been objecting to this idea for as long as I have been married, which is not a short time, Gerard. And finally, they wore me down. All four of them just ganged up on me. And here we have a cute little puppy. And uh, I that, yeah, I'm sure that within a week, that puppy's going to be all, I will be all responsible for her. <laughs> of course. I'll, I'll take the cuteness and somebody else scooping the poop for the time being. And we'll, we'll get there when we get there. So I'm glad that you had a happy uh, Thanksgiving, Gerard. But the work doesn't stop. The work doesn't stop. So a couple great stories of the week. I want to point to one in the Wall Street Journal by Valerie Bauerlein. And I'm particularly interested in this. I have to give a shout out um, to my colleague at Excelined, Matthew Joseph, who does a lot of great work on school funding and school finance. And I think this article in the Wall Street Journal sort of put distills a lot of what folks who think about school funding already know. And um, it's, it talks about three different approaches saying that, you know, the pandemic should change some things and it should really change um, how we fund K to 12 education specifically. The title of the article is exactly that three new approaches to paying for K to 12 education. And so I'm going to highlight real quickly the three things this brings to light. So the first thing is budgeting for student needs. Okay. So no surprise here. This sounds like some model of weighted student funding, which we know is already happening in some U.S. cities. It's very common in other countries. It's common in Canada. It's common in the Netherlands. So, but really, you know, thinking about at the state level, at the district level, do students need different amounts of funding because they come to the table needing different things? Some students have special educational needs that are more expensive than other students. Um, in the Netherlands, a model that I love to think about, you know, they, um, they weight students according to social background, socioeconomic background. They have a range of indicators. Um, you know, do your parents speak uh, Dutch as a native language would be one indicator of whether or not a child might need a little bit more funding behind their education. So that's one way of doing it. The next is money based on mastery. So this is interesting because it's about, do we pay schools basically for showing us that kids can actually do something? And I got to tell you, Gerard, like there's a part of my brain that really likes this. And there's another part of my brain that's like, huh, as a former teacher, I find that 
very complicated and I can already hear the complaints. <laughs> we, we can't control for what this child did before, after, or blah, 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 on and on and on and on. But I'm interested to learn more. So um, I'm going to look more into that because it's pretty thought provoking. And then the next one that those of us who advocate for parent choice should really love is the hybrid classroom. So, you know, mm-hmm. this article says, and I'm going to quote here, there will likely be a mix of online and in-person learning models that continue after the crisis is over, funded by tax revenue, offset by tax rates to parents or supported by public and private grants. Okay. So this is like the work that you and I do on the daily, right, Gerard? How do you open up a world of possibilities to students? And I think that that this article gets it right. I think some parents are going to say, you know what? Remote learning is bad. I might be able to do a mix of things for my child. Now, this would have to come with a lot of different policy changes. How do we ensure that kids have access to cool courses like they might in New Hampshire? We should give New Hampshire a shout out for their new Learn Everywhere model. How do we ensure that if kids, you know, want to take a math class one place, but stay, take their science class in the district, that that works for them? And then more importantly, how do you fund it? Well, one thing we know is that you can't fund it like we would normally do according to seat time or according to headcount. You need to subvert that. And I would say, you know, we should really think about um, a model of that allows optimal choices and couples that with funding based on student needs, funding in a backpack, not a new idea, but Mm -hmm. an idea that's time has come. So I I highly recommend this article. I think it's a good, like I said, it's a good, strong sort of synopsis of the things that we should be keeping an eye on. So what do you got this week? So I've got an equally good story that's also talking about money and reform. And it's by Damien Cavanaugh, uh, who's the president of the Mid-South Independent School Business Officers Association, and Ben Scafferty, who is the director of Education sure. uh, Economic Center at Kennesaw State and a Freedman Fellow at Ed Choice. And this is in the Hill, and the title is One Sector is Flourishing During the Pandemic, and it's K-12 Private Schools. And so the authors uh, up front are pretty clear that this has really been tough on a lot of people. You know, 22 million jobs lost. Uh, Even with things changing, we still have 10 million jobs uh, that were down. And so they're very clear COVID has made a major impact on employment, also on health. The spillover effect, of course, has taken place in our schools. According to the authors, From 2007 to 2011, during what we call the Great Recession, K-12 enrollment in independent private schools declined by 642,000 students, or 11% decrease. During the same time, uh, right now, in fact, the number of school-aged children in private independent schools, religious, independent, religious, private, are increasing. And we're trying to figure out why. And so they put the, looked at a survey of 160 independent schools over 15 states and the District of Columbia and identified that over half of the 160 schools, 78 to be exact, surveyed, report that they have a higher enrollment this current school year relative to last year. 48 schools experienced a decrease in enrollment and 34 schools had an enrollment that stayed about the same. Even for the 34 schools where the enrollment stayed about the same, guess what? 14 of them said that enrollment did not increase because they reached capacity. But 78 Mm -hmm. said they're experiencing higher enrollment. 
Now, you would think this is counterintuitive. Why? Because families make school decisions based upon finances. And given the fact that so many families have lost their jobs, you would think families could not afford or would choose not to send their children to private schools. Well, based upon the result uh, from the survey, one reason that independent schools have become a, an attractive item to families is because, guess what? They're more likely to be open, and they have also created the kind of protocols that CDC says uh, are, is necessary to get the job done. So of the 160 independent schools, 121 are fully open uh, in face-to-face -face learning, and the remaining 39 are involved with some type of hybrid learning model. So I think it's just good for two reasons. One, say that there are private schools that are open, uh, that are working, and they even identified when they looked at safety factors that the students, teachers, and staff uh, are about 40% lower in terms of infection rates in private schools, independent schools, compared to public schools in the sample. Arguably, there's some who would say that you have a larger sample size in public schools, so the numbers could be off. But the point, two takeaways for me. One, private schools are open and families are choosing them. Uh, at a time you think they would not because of economic challenges. And number two, while there are some private schools that are experiencing some challenges with health, um, it doesn't seem to be as large as people would think because they're meeting in person. So I think it was just a healthy story for families to talk about economics and about choice. It's it's a really important story and, and well done. And you know, one of the things that I've been noodling in my mind, my, my children are in a private school, as I think you know, and I'm on the board of that private school. And um, we, everything you just said, <laughs> I mean, everything you just said, they've been in person, they're doing the protocols really well. You know, we've had one, one diagnosis of COVID since June when the school was open for the summer as well. I think it's pretty remarkable. I think it says a lot. But the question that we keep asking ourselves on the board is, is this going to persist, right? So this increase in enrollment, this heightened demand for this teeny tiny private school, um, is it going to persist? That One of the things that it's taught us is that if we want it to persist, we have to think outside of the box about different ways to help families access uh, the product that we have. We've always had, you know, tuition remissions and, and scholarships and things of this nature, but it brought it of, of the more diverse types of families that really do want to attend our school. And sometimes they're by different things. Sometimes it's cost, sometimes it's transportation. So it's probably, I think, to think outside of the box. If wanted to expand enrollment, we could really do something different here. So this is going to be an interesting thing to watch as we as we go forward. We were predicting the doom and gloom of private schools, and now look what's happening in some cases. So thank you for that. Now, Gerard, um, I, I told you before, I'm a huge fan of our next guest. I've never had the opportunity to speak to her, so I'm super excited for this. I know you are, too. Um, after this, we are going to be speaking to Professor Caroline Hoxby. I don't think she really probably needs much of an introduction for most of our for most of our listeners who I think listen to this because we talk so much about charters and choice and other issues in education evaluation. But for those of you who don't, you're going to know who she is after this and you're going to want to listen for sure. So coming up right after the break. And listeners, we are back with Caroline Hoxby. She is the Scott and Danya Bomber Professor of Economics at Stanford University. 
the director of the Economics of Education program for the National Bureau of Economic Research and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. She also served as a member of the board of directors of the National Board of Education Sciences. Hotsby's research has received numerous awards, including a Carnegie Fellowship, a John M. Olin Fellowship, a National Tax Association Award, and a major grant from the National Institute of Child Health and Development. She has written extensively on educational choice and related issues and is the editor of How the Financial Crisis and the Great Recession Affected Higher Education, The Economic Analysis of School Choice, and College Choices. She graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard University in 1988, where she won the Hoops Prize, and she earned her master's degree in 1990 from the University of Oxford, which she attended on a Rhodes Scholarship, and her doctorate in 1994 from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Carolyn Huxby, welcome to The Learning Curve. I'm so excited to be with you today, and I really look forward to our conversation. Yeah, I have to say we're very excited too. And I think that a lot of our listening audience is very familiar with your work because we talk so much on this show about choice related issues and, and I mean, all things education, but really Gerard and I both have a background in choice. So as I was telling you before we opened, I um, I've read your work. I've referenced your work uh, in my own doctoral work and, and, and subsequent um subsequent writing. So it's just such a pleasure to meet you and get the opportunity to ask you some questions. So we're excited. Um, so let, let's dive right into sort of how you came to this, because as I said, so many of us have read you and you're, I mean, there, there's, there's very good work on charter schools and choice, but you were really just among the first and doing doing gold standard research on these issues. So can you tell us how you came to the study of schools, school choice, and and what we might call social mobility? How did you become interested in it? Well, to be honest, I think I've been interested in social mobility from the time I was uh, probably a a small child. So I don't think that's a new interest. I think that I also... uh, partly as a result of my upbringing, but also partly as a result of my experience, believed that education was probably one of the linchpins to social mobility in the United States. But to be clear, when I got to Harvard University as an undergraduate student, I thought that the answer was going to be as long as you pour more money into schools, you will automatically improve social mobility and that will just be the way it works. And so when I started looking at data I and evidence, I realized, oh my gosh, it just is not that simple. And my uh, brain as an economist turned on and said, why would it be the case that it's not just a matter of money that there is, you need to pay attention to other things. And economists pay a lot of attention to how organizations work and, and, and how employees of organizations work and how hiring works and all of those kinds of things. And so by the time I got, by the time I got really interested in writing about this, I was already starting to think about school choice simply because I think that's pretty natural for an economist. School choice is fundamentally about how the organizations that we call schools work and whether they're working well for children. 
So that's how I got interested in it. But I've always been interested in social mobility. From from the time you were mobile yourself, it sounds like. And so <laughs> so you, you, you point out, so this, this myth that you pour more money into schools and suddenly, and, and you know, that's going to be, that's going to lead to performance. Um, and, and you suggest here that, and certainly in your work, what we've learned is that's not the case. It's not necessarily a lesson that has hit home, however. I mean, meaning that it's not a lesson that I think um, people understand sitting around the dinner table, unless it's something that you commit yourself to, um, whether you're working in the system or you're researching the system. Could you talk a little bit more about some of the major lessons you've learned um, over the years through your research? Maybe some of them that were counterintuitive, like the idea that pouring more money into schools would make children achieve. Right. So I definitely think that I came into this uh, research process thinking for every additional dollar you pour in, you're going to turn out higher achievement. I really I really did believe that in the beginning, and I was quite shocked to find that that did not appear to be the case. And so then I tried to look into issues like school choice, and I started by paying attention to vouchers, voucher schools, um, school vouchers, I guess you would say. And um, that's a really difficult topic (laughs) to research because school vouchers are not that common. And so it's, it's really just hard to research that topic. And then I got even more interested in charter schools because charter schools are much more common than school vouchers And so therefore they provide us with far more opportunities to do research into the effects of school choice. But I think both of them, whether you're talking about charter schools or whether you're talking about school vouchers are fundamentally about the same question, which is, should there be competition for students among schools? Should schools have to perform well in order to have students attend those schools. And I think that that is, you know, that is just the fundamental question in American education because there are so many schools and school districts that do not believe that they have to perform well in order to continue to attract students. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, it, it would be really interesting to to have this conversation a year from now and see if the circumstances under which schools are existing now, some of some of public schools seem we don't know if they're temporary. We can assume they may be declines in enrollments, for example. Um, they might be experiencing a little more competition, be it from somebody homeschooling or um, or private schools, um, more parents seeking private schools, although not all of them can afford it for sure. Right. Um I want to ask you, let's talk a little bit more specifically about charter schools, because as I mentioned at the outset, you did some of the earliest um, really detailed gold standard studies um, in places like New York and Chicago in the charter sectors. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm guessing part of what you're saying is charter schools are sort of a a dream to study because they produce, you can can get as close as you can to a randomized control trial, right? So that students who, um, who did attend the charter school in comparisons to students who um, wanted to attend the charter school but didn't, for example, get into the lottery. 
I'm curious to hear your take. I'm going to give you a two-part question. So heads up on uh, to hear your take on um, what what do we really know about charter schools? Because proponents of charters will say they're fantastic and they work, and those who don't like charter schools will say, oh, they don't work at all. And then we also have this, well, they're a mixed bag. So I'm curious to know in your experience, um, if if you had to say sum up, like, what do we know about the effectiveness of charter schools? What might you say? And I'm also really curious to get your take on the state of charter school research. Um, are we doing good charter school research today? Should we be doing more? Well, let's start at the top and say that on average, charter schools are doing a better job than the uh, traditional public schools with which they are competing. And just to be clear, charter schools are public schools. So that's why I'm qualifying yes. traditional, okay. traditional public schools. So on average, they are doing better. And the difference is not small. It is on the order of um, sorry, we statistical folks speak in <laughs> crazy language, but <laughs> it's on the order of um, 10% to 20% of a standard deviation. And I like to always tell people that a standard deviation in education research is about a grade level. It's actually a little bit more than a grade level, but I think that's about right. So your your child is getting about an extra 10th and to an extra fifth of a, you know, of a grade level for each year that your child is attending a charter school. Now that's on average. There is a distribution though, because not all charter schools perform the same way. And there are some charter schools that are incredibly uh, just, just so impressive in terms of their effects on achievement that uh, I remember the first time I saw their data and I really didn't quite believe it. I mean, that's the only way to describe the situation was that their effects were huge. Um, 0.4 of a standard deviation, which is sort of like saying half a year per year of attending the charter school. That's really a big, uh, impressive uh, um, you know, amount. But there are also some charter schools in the United States um, that have slightly negative effects on students. And there are a good number of charter schools that have only very modest positive effects on students. So I think that it's not uh, the wonder. Okay, the good thing about charter schools, just to be clear, is that it is a bit of a market. There are charter schools that are introduced and do a wonderful job. And then there are charter schools that are introduced and do not do a wonderful job. And the whole goal of markets is to try to drive out the bad performers. So it's not it's not a terrible thing that we should see some variation. That's that's kind of what markets do. And then markets usually push out the bad performers. And that's very much what charter school what charter schools are like. I think your question, though, was also, um, can we do good charter school research? And I think the answer is yes, if we use the fact that so many charter schools 
admit students through a randomized lottery. Essentially, they're just choosing students' names out of a hat or the equivalent. And that allows us to perform a randomized control trial that is not that different from the randomized control trial that we might perform if we were trying to understand whether a heart medication worked or a placebo worked the same way. So it's it's not that different. It's kind of the same thing. And uh, I think that's the best quality research on charter schools. And thank goodness there have now been not tens of thousands, but hundreds of thousands of students who have participated in these randomized controlled trials for all intents and purposes. There is also some research that does not use that method, and I do not believe that the research that does not use that method is reliable. Yeah, it's it's very, thank you for that clarification, because I think, so. I, for example, I sit here in Boston, Pioneer Institute is in Boston, and as you well know, we're home to many very high-performing charter schools in, in Boston, and it's, um, you know, it's been written about as a sort of phenomenon, but one really can only see that through the lottery system. One final question before I let Gerard jump in, because I know he, he really wants to, and that is, um, you know, putting on your hat as somebody who understands the charter school landscape and charter school outcomes, but then has to listen to the, the political sides of the debates about charter schools, um, which have been, you know, having a tough time as of late in terms of policy and in terms of attacks on charter schools and and, and attempts to paint them as something other than public, uh, which has been going on from the beginning. But in the past couple of years, it's been pretty tough. Um, is there anything that you would say to policymakers as they think through whether they should create laws for more charters or create better laws for charter authorization? Um, how would you have policymakers think about charter schools and what they can do for kids? Well, I, I, I'm going to just return to a kind of conversation that I had, and now this is years ago, um, with some um, advocates for education who were very, very opposed to charter schools, including a number of um, representatives from the AFT. And they said, we think that charter schools will be, uh, you know, bad, or they will be negative or something like that. And I, I remember thinking, at the end of the day, isn't it okay to try something new? And to try to gather evidence on whether it could be better as a policy and then find out whether it is better. Because if you decide that you have, if you decide ex ante that it can't be better and so you don't need to try it and you don't need to let it exist, then you are kind of ruling out improvement in American public schools. And so that that was really an important conversation that I had all these years ago, just really about, are you going to let the experiment exist? Let's return back to money. And so for decades, uh, the U.S.'s per pupil expenditure adjusted for inflation has grown quite dramatically. We're looking at 280 percent since 1960. Meanwhile, student achievement has generally 
been unchanged on NAEP reading and math. What does this tell us about the productivity of our K-12 education system? And what are some of the long-term implications of these data regarding social mobility and economic vitality for the country? This is such an important question, Gerard, and thank you for asking it. It has a couple of different points. Um, so let me start actually with the end of your question, which is about the productivity of our K-12 education system and the long-term implications. We have a country that is moving in the direction of having more and more economic opportunity be determined on the basis of whether a person has skills or does not have skills. And that is not something that we can probably change. There are two main reasons for that. The first main reason for that is that technology is uh, just routinely replacing less skilled labor with, um, you know, some sort of robot or machine or mm-hmm. artificial intelligence. Okay, so that's one reason. And then the second reason is that we are now having to compete with people all around the world with whom we did not have to compete 20, 30 years ago. So for instance, if I am making some manufacture or craft today, I could make it in Bangladesh, I could make it in Pakistan, I could make it in Malawi, I could make it in many other countries of the world, and I, Brazil, whatever, I, I do not have to make it in the United States. And that is also something that we cannot prevent. And I should mention, it's not just making manufacturers, it's also writing software, it's also doing high tech stuff. A lot of that takes place these days in other countries. And we, there is nothing that we can do about that. All right. So that that's, I'm just trying to set the backdrop there. Mm -hmm. That means that when we're talking about American children growing up to be adults, we do not want them to be trying to compete in terms of wages with, Uh, children from Malawi or Bangladesh who live in a world where the cost of living is completely radically different than it is in the United States. So therefore they need to be skilled. We need to have skilled people who move into industries and occupations that require skills. So now let, let me go back to your initial question, Gerard, because I think it was really important. And that was about the productivity of American spending on education. We, in order to do well in this kind of competition, we need to be efficient at turning American dollars into uh, educated, skilled people. And right now, as you pointed out, We've had this enormous growth in American school spending on a per student basis in real inflation adjusted terms. And we really do not have much evidence to show that that extra money made a difference in terms of student achievement. But if it doesn't make a difference, then what that means is that the productivity 
of American schools has been falling and falling and falling over time. And it's been very much, uh, it's been very consistent, uh, at least since 1960. So it, this, th- th- these are decades. This is not a matter of one year was a year in which educational productivity was falling. It's really that it's been falling as long as we've been able to record it. It's amazing. Let's stick with the international uh, landscape. So you studied at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar. Your academic work has explored the economics of education policymaking. In your own educational experience and as a researcher, what are the characteristics of education in England, Europe, elsewhere in the world that you most admire? And are there international models, either K-12 or higher ed, that you think America should emulate in its reform agenda? Well, I'm, I'm going to stick with uh, K-12 education on this front because I think that American higher education has a lot of problems, but I think most of its problems are caused by the K-12 system. So, so that's why, that's why I'm going to stick with K-12 here, because I think if you deliver uh, students to the higher education system who are, you know, are really don't know how to be good students, I think that you're kind of putting higher education into a bind. And I'm not sure that the problem is caused by higher education. I tend to think of it as being caused by K-12. So let's let's just go back to K-12. So what do we know about K-12 education in the United States. We know that one of the most important things that affects how well a student does in terms of achievement, and not just uh, academic achievement, but also performance in terms of graduating on time, not getting into disciplinary problems in school, it is the teacher who is teaching the student. And so that is really crucial. Maybe that is the one great lesson of the last 10 to 15 years in education is your teacher really does matter. And therefore, when I look internationally, a lot of what it is that I think about is how does this other system choose people to become teachers? And how does it evaluate them as teachers? And I'm going to point to two things specifically. The first is that Canada, our neighbor to the north, which is really not that different from the United States in many ways. I always say to my students, you know, they watch the same shows on television and they buy the same clothes in stores and they pretty much eat the same things. So therefore, if Canadian teachers are very different from American teachers, then that can't be a function of better nutrition on the Canadian side of the border or something along those lines. So Canada chooses teachers by looking for students who have a terrific job in their baccalaureate degree programs and then setting a high standard for them to become teachers in the Canadian system. And that is not something that we do in the United States. We do not have a system whereby you go through your baccalaureate degree, you get your baccalaureate degree in science, mm, okay. else, and then you have to score really well to become a teacher. So that that is a big difference between us and Canada. 
I would also say that if you look at the United Kingdom, their system has in place a, it's an evaluation system whereby rotating people come in and evaluate how teachers are doing. And it's, it's just not a system that we have in the United States. And these people are third party. They are not, you know, they're not a member of the local school board or something like that. They come from the Ministry of Education and they are skilled evaluators and they help teachers to improve and they also help to evaluate teachers. And we also are that system in the United States. So I think we do better on teachers. That teachers matter the most. And we hear a lot of people say that some have invested money into traditional teacher education programs for productivity purposes. Others have created alternative settings and some have created grad schools uh, that look radically different than what we have now. You know, there, there's something you said that actually reminded me of a uh, 2018 conversation. It was, in fact, it was in February. I was doing a one-on-one interview with Angus Deaton, uh, winner of the Nobel Prize in Economics, and we were talking about you know wealth, health, uh, inequality, and you mentioned the importance of social mobility and the need for human capital. In this case, being teachers, um, he said, you know, he grew up lower income kid uh, today, very different lifestyle. He said, I was able to change the trajectory of my lifestyle in one generation. Knowing what you do and what you've studied as relates to economics and education, do we still have either the platform or even the political will to say that in one generation, we can change the social mobility trajectory for at least 25% of the children? Uh, I believe we could change it for 100% of the American school children. I don't believe that there's anything inherently um, problematic about American school children. Uh, I believe that they are capable of changing their life trajectory, well, changing the trajectories from those of their parents and maybe mm-hmm. I just I totally believe that they can do that, but they cannot do it if they do not have good, strong educational opportunities. And um, that's I think that's one of the reasons why one should pay attention to something like charter schools, because we know that there are some charter schools out there. I'm not saying all but some charter schools out there that are absolutely transformative and they completely change the, um, the trajectories of students. So it's, I, don't, I don't see how we can say they don't, you know, it's impossible. And one of the reasons I say this is when I, in my own research on charter schools, most of the students who attend these schools come from for instance, the New York City Charter Schools, this is an example. They come from very poor families mm-hmm. uh, in Harlem. They come from the South Bronx. These are not kids who are coming from privileged backgrounds. And the charter schools that they have attended have managed to uh, transform their lives. And these, um, the research on this is 
important because, as I said before, these are randomized <laughs> controlled trials, uh, essentially, lotteries. And so we're sure that it isn't that they had the, you know, the special parents or something mm-hmm. like that. It's just they they were able to change their lives. And if we can have the students from Harlem and from the South Bronx end up with levels of achievement that are similar to students who are from very privileged families in Westchester County, then I, I don't see why we should give up on American students. I, I, I think it's just a matter of having better schools, frankly. I feel like that's a mic drop moment. And I, I would love to I'll probably um, quote you if you don't mind, uh, Professor Hawksby, from here on out, because um, with good, strong educational opportunities, we can educate 100% of American students to a high bar. Maybe that's the pithy way we need to put it to get to get folks to realize that we do have um, solutions that work right under our nose. We need to we need to broaden them. We need to implement them more of them. So thank you so much for um, for an enlightening time. It has been a pleasure um, to to talk to you rather than just read the work and and to listen to to your ideas and a little bit of how you came to them. And um, we hope to be able to spend time with you again in the very new future. It was a, just a terrific, um, a, just a terrific interview, and just wonderful to have a chance to talk to you all. You know, I've admired uh, the Pioneer Institute for years, so this is a that's a privilege for me. Well, Gerard, it's my turn to close it out with the tweet of the week. And this one is from, this is this is new for us. You see, we get these great tweets from Jamie Gass, our, one of our producers, who's just, uh, he's a fountain of knowledge. Um, this is from Playbill. And it says that a filmed version of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, starring Tony winner Jefferson Mays, streams worldwide beginning November 28th to benefit partner theaters nationwide that have been affected by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, even if you don't celebrate Christmas and you don't, um, uh, and you're not interested in the Christmas Carol, or maybe you're interested in it, even if you don't celebrate Christmas, I think the cause is a really cool one to stream something worldwide to help theaters all over the world or all over the nation in this case that have been impacted because they can't put on shows due to COVID-19. Think of all the people that this could help. So um, I'm excited for it. I'm going to try and make my kids watch it. How about you, Gerard? Are you a fan of A Christmas Carol? I am. Yeah. It's a good classic, you know? I mean, not, maybe not in the same categories, Home Alone. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and maybe we'll, uh, I was waiting for you to sing something, but I guess nothing comes to mind. But usually when we talk about uh, movies, or maybe it's just Frozen that you like to sing, Gerard. But There's a couple others, but yeah, not, yeah nothing hit with this one. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna work on that. I am gonna work on that. All right, next week we are going to be speaking to Daniel Walker Howe. He is the Rhodes Professor of American History Emeritus at Oxford University in England, and Professor of History Emeritus at UCLA. And he won the 2008 Pulitzer for History for What Hath God Wrought: The Transformation of America, 1815 to 1848. So this is gonna I have be- that book. It's really good. Of course you do. You just put me to shame. Every time we have something, <laughs> I have to think. So it's, you know, it's expanding my um, my repertoire, so to speak. Gerard, 
uh, proud of you on the gumbo. Have a great week. I'm going to see you this week at the Excel and Ed Summit. So looking forward to that. Ditto. All right. (laughs) Take care, my friend. Take care.